You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Today marks the first uh, Sunday in a six-week series. We're looking at the book of Ephesians. Um, <clears throat> Ephesians is very different from other Paul's other letters. It has some similarities to Colossians, but it's really different. There's, uh, there's no personal greeting. Usually in Paul's letters, he's talking to people. He names them, identifies them at the beginning of his letter. <clears throat> there's none of that here. Nor in this letter to, to the, the church in Ephesus does he refer to specific events. You know, usually in his other letters, he's, he's talking about specific situations and circumstances or behaviors of people. Hey, those of you who are doing that, stop it. You know, that was what was happening in his other letters. And here we don't see any of that. It's very general. We don't see um, him, the theology that we often see in Paul's other letters. It's very different in, in here in Ephesians as well. In fact, this letter is so different that there's some who actually question whether in fact Paul wrote it. Um, and so I, I'm not going to go down the weeds uh, in that conversation. Um, but what's also interesting here, if you actually look at the letter, that the bulk of the letter is actually written as if it's a sermon. So in, in other words, if you, if you think about how you're going to write a letter to an individual and you write it out and, you know, dear Johnny and Susie and you have this letter... And then you actually write, here's a talk I'm going to give to a group of people. And you write that. They're going to look very different. And so most of what we see in Ephesians, it almost looks as if it's, it was a, a talk or a sermon that was to be given to a different uh, group context. The, the book of Ephesians has two primary themes in it. The first theme is that how, our, how, <clears throat> excuse me, how we are redeemed by God. It's about God's activity, God's work, what he's done. The second theme is that how we then should live. Given what happens in the first part, is this, is, this is our response. Interestingly enough, the, the, the book of Ephesians is six chapters, and those two themes are split right down the middle. So the first three chapters are talking about our Christian identity, what God has done for us, who we are in God. The second three chapters, chapters four through six, talks about how we're to live out our identity in the church and there in the world. What's interesting about this book is that the book of Ephesus is not a call for the people in Ephesus to change their behavior. He's not saying, hey, you need to do better, you need to do more. He's, that's not the tone of this letter at all. The tone of the letter, it's a call to a firm resolve. It, it's, he's appealing to their conviction to preserve the values of those who are in Christ. It's kind of like, you can do this. He's not, it's not critical, it's not condemning, it's we can do this. Now, we're actually going to read a passage from um, chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 14. What's interesting about this particular passage, in the original Greek, this, these 12 verses were written as one sentence. Um, for, for just understanding and clarity's sake, those who have translated that have actually put in periods here and there and put in some punctuation just so it reads better. But it was written as one single statement, which I think is kind of interesting. So you can follow along on your screen uh, up here or if you have a, a device uh, or even if you have an actual Bible um, that uh, follow along as I read. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's writing here as he communicates to the people in Ephesus 2,000 years ago when this was written, Lord, there's so much of that's, what's here that applies to us today. It's as if he could, have wrote, he could have wrote this this morning to us specifically here in Statesville, and this would have just as much application and understanding. So Lord, as we dig a little deeper, help us to understand a little bit more about what Paul was saying and what this means to us in our relationship with you. Uh, so Father, I, I ask for you to guide the remaining few minutes we're uh, I'm sharing, Lord, that uh, you'd be very present and speak to us, Holy Spirit, as you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what's interesting also about this passage is that, again, all 12 verses, I mentioned is a single sentence, but it's an extended blessing. It's really one thought in that regard. It's a blessing um, which is fairly common in Old Testament worship practices. We see it very often in, in, in some of the Old Testament passages during acts of worship. We also see it um, in letters and communication between individuals. Now, one in particular is 1 Kings 5.21, where one of the kings, I forget one of the neighboring kings, is writing a letter to King Saul. And I'm sorry, Solomon, David's son, Solomon. And... Uh, the passage, he, he, he begins the conversation with this kind of a greeting. Hey, bless, it's actually blessed as God who honored David by putting one of his sons on the throne. You know, so it has the idea of blessing God and praising God for what he has done in there. Th so the, the idea of using this kind of a, an approach is not uncommon within, within uh, that tradition. What is uncommon is its length. The length of this was just, is really long compared to what we see other words. The other, uh, this, this particular passage I just read has 266 words. I didn't count them. I did a word thing. I highlighted and it tells me automatically, but uh, 266 words, whereas the, 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 the blessing I just read that we see in 1 Kings is 19 words. 19, 20, maybe 30 is what we would see normally. So the fact that this has almost 10 times the length is, again, just significant for us What's most noticeable, though, about this passage is the references to in Christ. It uses that reference, in Christ. Uh, there's 12 verses, nine different, in nine of them, we see this reference. It's 11 times total. 
that we see the term or some reference to us being in Christ. Something that's mentioned that often you'd think might be kind of important. Um, so what does it mean to be in Christ? And, uh, and I spent a lot of time pondering that, you know, and getting ready and just what's that think? Well, we know it's not literal. We know it's not a, we're not in, you know, so it's not a literal in that sense of physical, in, we're not physically inside Christ. What I discovered in my own study and readings and research is that you can get deep into the weeds in this really fast, okay? And just, I, I'm not even going to begin to tell you what some of the thoughts are about what that means. So let me summarize what I think might be meant, what it means to be in Christ. I think one of the things that one means to be in Christ is that Christ is the avenue. He's the path through which God blesses us. I think an example of that would be John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's through Christ. It's our faith in Christ. Christ is the path through which God blesses us. That's one of the ways we can understand what it means to be in Christ. But there's also the sense that we are incorporated into Christ. Verse 4 in, in what we just read, it said, For God, he, God chose us in him before the creation of the world. So again, there's, this, there's a difference. Well, we're in Christ. And then verse 13, uh, Paul is saying, he says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word. So what's interesting is there's only other two other instances in all of the New Testament where we have this reference to being in Christ. Both of them in letters from Paul. One is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The other one is later on in the book of Ephesians and in chapter 4. In both of those instances, he's talking about the church, the body of Christ. So you're, you're, in those other passages, you're members of his body. You're part of him. You're, you're part of the body of Christ and Jesus is the head. In both instances, he's talking about the body of Christ. So then to be in Christ then has this idea that to be in relationship with other members, you're part of his body. You're part of things. You're a member of things. I think we can say specifically that you are part of, if you are in Christ, you are part of God's redemptive work here on earth. You're, you're part of it. You're part of what it means to be in Christ. Within that, a couple thoughts, all right, all right? So if we have a little better understanding of what that means, what about that? What are some of the implications for that? I think one of the thoughts that there's probably even in your, um, in your worship guide, your outline there, is that if we do not know who we are as Christ followers, we will live far below the blessing and destiny God has for us. My uncle uh, was a policeman growing up, and uh, as I was growing up, he was a policeman, and uh, a, a canine cop in the city of Minneapolis. And so his partner was a German shepherd. And uh, this one time we were there visiting for a summer, and uh, Spike uh, was this particular dog's name, was in his pen. It was uh, uh, the chain link fence. You know, he had his, his little area. 10-foot-high fence around him. And so as we're pulling in, Spike's going nuts, you know, because they live out in the country, so, you know, they're outside. And, um, and so I'm, and my uncle comes out to greet us and stuff, and he's like, man, I'm really glad Spike is, is there, you know, because he did not look happy that uh, we were uh, invading his territory. My uncle said something that just to this day fascinating, because you want to know something interesting? Spike could jump that fence, leap that fence, and not think twice about it. Why doesn't he? 
he doesn't know he can do it. He has the capacity to do it. He just doesn't know he can. I think some of us have a diminished view of what it means to be in Christ. We have capacity for far more than what we think we have and what we think we can do. That's one thought. The second thought is this. If we only emphasize that Christ is in us, we define and limit Christ to our reality. If we realize we are in Christ, he determines our reality and encompasses all we are. If Christ is in us, he's limited by us. If we are in him, there is no limitation to what that means in our lives. We are so much more when we see ourselves as being in Christ. So what is the passage we just read? What does it tell us then about our identity as Christ followers? What does that tell us? What What is Paul writing to us? I think one of the things he is saying is that we are chosen by the Father. Notice in the video when uh, Kurt Russell, the actor, he, he walked into the room. Remember the, the mood of the room? It was very sober, very somber, very quiet. Any of you who have played sports like that realize that's, that, that is what often happens when you've got this huge game, the pressure. There, I remember some guys literally getting physically sick because of just the anxiety and the stress of what is about to happen of, of that competition. The, the mood, the, the, the stress was palpable. Even in the video, you could just feel the angst that these guys were feeling. This really was a David and Goliath moment when you understand the context of what was happening. <clears throat> Again, remember, this was in the days, the height of the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. This was bragging rights for everything. I mean, this, this had huge implications but notice that the coach, he didn't dis- diminish the challenge. He didn't go on and say, oh, the Soviets aren't any good. He didn't say, uh, he didn't say oh, don't worry. Yeah, well, in fact, he actually did just the opposite. He actually started his conversation. If we played them 10 times, they'll probably win nine. But then he switched the focus. If we played them 10 times, they might win nine, but not tonight. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players. You were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. Notice what Paul tells us in the passage we just read. Talking about God, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons. We have redemption lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will. We were chosen, predestined for the praise of his glory. The same thing that Paul's trying to convey to us about who we are in Christ and about the fact that we were chosen by God. My friends, it's not by accident or chance that we are the children of God. He handpicked us to be part of his family. You were chosen by the Father. As Christ followers, I think we also learn from this passage that we are redeemed by the Son. To redeem means to purchase and set free by paying a price. We know that the price was the blood of Christ, the very life of Jesus himself. 
many number of scriptures in Paul's letters and even other writers in New Testament uh, identify that the price paid for us was Jesus Christ. I, I think it's important to note in verse 5, um, talks about adopted as his sons. I actually use that word, adopted as his sons. I'm curious to know, do any of you other have a different translation that refer to that differently? Adopted as his sons, verse 5. If you have an NIV, you don't. Anybody? Some translations actually have that as um, adopted as his children. Now, I get it. It's, the, the writers are trying to be inclusive, and I'm all for that. We, we know that the Bible was written in a day which was very paternalistic. And there's sometimes where Paul is writing, and he, he uses a term that's very male or masculine, but he's, he's, try, he's not excluding women. It's just the way things were that then. And so in many of our contemporary translations, the, 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 the writers of the Bible have modified that to reflect the more inclusive language because they, they understand that's what the intent of the author would have been. That if they were writing today, that they would have wanted to include everyone. And normally I'm fine with that because I think that's the right thing to do. I think that was the intent. But this is one time where I think they got it wrong. And... See, adoption has legal implications. There are legal rights and, and things. And Paul is not saying that only sons are adopted. Only the males are adopted. What he is saying is that all of us are adopted, men and women, as if we were sons. You remember back in the day, the, especially the firstborn son got a double portion of the inheritance. The sons were the ones who were listed. The sons were the ones by which things passed from family to family. What Paul is saying here is not so much that only sons are going to get it, but that all of us are going to get it as if we were sons. Because you are in Christ, you have maximum rights. There is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. Whatever we might do, it will never be enough to compensate for our sin. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. We were chosen by the Father. We were redeemed by the Son. And lastly, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The idea here is just like that of branding an animal. You've seen the Westerns. You know, they take the, the cows and hold them down and put a hot iron on them, and the mark, the owner now has his mark, which when they're out wandering in the field and someone gets loose and they say, Who's, whose cow is this? They find the brand that oh, belongs, to, belongs to whoever is up on the hill, and so they can take them back. I, I was going to say, belongs to Mike, but I realize we have a mic here, so I don't want to do that. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so it, but it has that idea that it's a mark that identifies them as to who they belong to. And that's what God is saying about us. We, the, the Holy Spirit is our seal, is our brand. The Holy Spirit is what identifies us as belonging, belonging to God. There's, within that idea then, there's a couple, there's three different thoughts. One is that it's a finished transaction. You never have to wonder what if about your relationship with God. It's a done deal. You are his son. You are his daughter in Christ. The other thing that's conveyed here is that ownership 
is clear. We belong to God. We're his. And a third idea that's conveyed in, those, in that idea of the, that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit is that it provides for security and protection. We are under his influence and authority and his protection. You know, what's uh, another interesting thing about that, not just the movie, but the hockey team um, at prior, leading up to the Olympics, all of these college players um, came from the best hockey universities in the country. I mean, so you look at all these teams who were the top-ranked hockey teams. It was their players from which this team was comprised. All of these players were captains on their teams. So you've got the best players on the best teams and the best you know, leagues or best universities we've got to produce. These were the best of the best of the best of the best. But what's, and, and they were from all over the country, and they represented different cultures, different economic lifestyles, but they were, they were, they were the best. One of the storylines in the movie, and in reality, was that it took them quite a long time to actually figure out how to play as a team. Because all of them were used to being the star. They were used to them. Everything would go through me, and I was the one that made the goal. I was the one that, and now all of a sudden, they had to make choices and decisions that Maybe I'm not going, maybe I'm just going to be the one who is going to be insignificant for this game. And it took them a while. Because it's, it's kind of like when you've got, if, let's just use a different analogy. It's a UNC Duke players now having to play in the same team. And right now I've got to pass you the ball and let you score instead of, I mean, their whole lives have been taught to not think that way. You just don't accommodate someone from that team. You know, or maybe it's a Clemson, Alabama. For me, it's Michigan, Ohio State. You know, you just don't associate with players in those teams. It's just the, the competitions. Again, they've been competing against each other all their lives. And now all of a sudden, I need to trust you. I need to want you to do well. I need to want you, even if it meant I don't do as well. They had to be willing to sacrifice personal glory for the good of the team. Past accomplishments and success would not help them win the gold medal. That's just like what it means to be in Christ. Your identity doesn't... You know what's, what's interesting, reflecting back in this letter that Paul wrote, again, remember, he, he, um, he visited them, and when he came back, he sent a letter. Um, it didn't work. He heard that they were not behaving, so he sent a second letter, which is actually 1 Corinthians. Um, it still didn't work. We actually know from 2 Corinthians that Paul actually uh, made a visit, another visit, a second visit. It's not recorded in Acts. But he, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about the time he came back to them again because they just weren't getting it. He'd had a personal visit, two different letters. He'd sent different people, and they just were really struggling. So he went out, and it says that he had a painful meeting, is how he described it, a painful visit. And uh, so it was a come to Jesus meeting, I guess, where he just said, and laid it on the line. And we know from 2 Corinthians and the content that we've seen there that they finally began to get it because the tone is very different. They finally discovered that the significance in life comes from serving one another, not from being selfish and wanting things your own way. Serving one another is the key. <clears throat> May that always be true.
for the people of Grace Covenant Statesville. Let's pray. Father, this morning we've had a chance to, um, again, just to, to sing and lift our voices and worship. We've had a chance to give. We've had a chance to talk and share and, and laugh at some goofy videos. And um, Father, again, all of it is because of our love and, and our passion for you and our desire to live out our faith. And Father, even though our faith is incredibly personal, it was never meant to be individualistic. It was always intended to be lived in relationship with other Christ followers. So God, thank you for the people of Grace Covenant Statesville. Father, thank you for what you're building and developing here and that you've called us to be a part of it. And uh, Lord, our desire is to honor you in all that we say and do. Father, if there's anyone here who is feeling a little left out, I pray, God, that an extra dose of grace would be on them this morning. Father, that uh, maybe there's feelings that have been hurt or maybe things didn't set quite right. Father, I pray that you would heal that in the name of Jesus right now. And Father, maybe there's, as we're just sitting here reflecting, maybe, Father, someone comes to mind that maybe we weren't as gracious as we could have been and maybe we need to go back to them and ask for forgiveness and make sure that that relationship is right. Uh, Father, I pray that you would protect this congregation from those seeds of anger, from those seeds of strife and division, that they would not take root and that they would die quickly. Father, that your Holy Spirit would protect us as a congregation. So Father, we thank you again for this day. And Lord, as we leave this place, I ask, Father, that you would uh, continue to go before us and prepare the way. Father, that you give your people favor with uh, the tasks they put their hands to, with the relationships and the people they meet. Father, that each would be blessed this day, I pray. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.